Future Pulse, Patients First, investigating innovative cardiovascular research with a patient-oriented clinical outcome focus. I'm Dr. Thomas Nero, clinical and interventional cardiologist and director of cardiovascular research at CAFC. Good morning, I'm Dr. Thomas Nero, and welcome to Patient Pulse. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Michael Gibson. Uh, Dr. Gibson is the CEO of the Bain and Perfuse Research Institute. He's a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School and a cardiologist and interventional cardiologist at BI Deaconess Hospital, as well as a study chair on numerous large clinical trials. He's also a good friend and one of the more interesting people that I've ever had an, an opportunity to meet and interact with. So thank you again, Dr. Gibson, for being with us today. Always great to be on, Tom. So today we're going to be talking about one of those topics that people love to hate, uh, but I think is incredibly, incredibly important, uh, and that's statistics, and specifically medical statistics and how how our patients are going to be utilizing this information and making decisions. I always think about the Far Side cartoon with the picture of Hell's Library, and all the books are labeled statistics. So Dr. Gibson, just to start out with, you're a clinical trialist. You run a lot of these trials. How does a, the average person, how should they access this information? What, are they, what should they be looking at? Well, first of all, I think we have a, a big job ahead of us. I think we have got to do a better job of educating people about statistics. It's not that hard. It, it's really not. And in medical school, I really think we need to substitute out a lot of the curriculum that we have for st- curriculum on statistics. Because at the end of the day, as a doctor, all the information is changing. You've got to make a judgment as to whether it's believable or credible. Likewise, patients. Patients also need to be more educated consumers of information because there's so much disinformation out there. And we saw that with uh, the COVID epidemic where, you know, we saw a lot of these drugs being touted as curing COVID or improving COVID, but the way the studies were conducted was not good statistics. They just said, well, you know, we looked at a bunch of people and those people who got the drug, did better than the people who didn't get the drug, but it wasn't randomized. They didn't randomly assign people to get the drug or not. Randomization and randomly deciding, are you going to get this new drug or not, is the cornerstone of good statistics. If you're reading something, the first question you should ask yourself is, did this study randomize people? Why do we randomize? We do because it makes sure that there's equal number of old people and equal number of women and equal number of people of of different kinds of medical problems in the two arms. So it's a fair fight. If it's not randomized, it's probably not a fair fight. When we choose to give someone a certain drug as a doc, we often do it because we believe it's going to work or or something about them that we think this could be good for you. If we don't give the person that drug, we think there's something where maybe they're too sick, they're too old, or we don't think they can tolerate the drug. So if people are too sick, too old, and can't tolerate drugs, they're put off in the like side of like it didn't work, and we know it's not going to work. So to beat your chest and say, the people I gave this drug to, it worked, if it's not randomized, it's just because the people you didn't give the drug to, they were probably really sick and not ever going to benefit. And people don't realize that. So first question, ask yourself, was it randomized? Did they randomly give the drug to people? If we could just get people to understand that, we could make such strides. Sadly, when I do polls on the internet, even doctors think that 
non-randomized data should inform us about what drugs work and don't. It's just so sad, so sad. I give us a, a solid D or even an F on like how we're doing in terms of educating not only patients, but medical professionals. We have a long way to go, Tom. And when we look at some of the trials, it's very interesting that when they do registries that match the trial, the registries tend to do better than the various trial arms because there's a physician and there's a patient behind there that is making that decision to take them out of the trial because they don't think that they should be randomized. And so it does does ask the question about who did end up being in that trial and trying to look at that trial and making sure that it is A, randomized, and B, that those patients matched you as the patient. Right. Right. That's the other big thing is, you know, you say, well, the trial was done well. The next question you should have is like, well, who was in the trial? Would I have been included in the trial? And, you know, what you see is, well, you, you had to have this, that, and every other thing to get into the study, but that's not you. So the second question you should ask is, what percent of people didn't get into the trial who wanted to get into the trial? What small sliver of patients, maybe big sliver or maybe a small one, got into the study? And that brings up a, a secondary question about sort of what we're going to look at as far as how important that trial is, right? We'll talk a lot about, we talk a lot about relative risk reduction and absolute risk reduction. And that when we look at this, that it has a 50% benefit, but it may not necessarily be that important to a patient. Yeah, it may have had a 50% benefit. It may have driven your risk from a 1% risk down to 0.5%. But you know, if it, on the other hand, it, it caused some complications, you know, that's not good. So always ask, what was the absolute event rates? What were the real numbers of people? Not the relative numbers, the real numbers. So was it randomized? Would I have been in this trial? And what were the real numbers? Not the relatives. A nice calculation that we can give is the number needed to treat. You know, this trial went on for a year or two years. We had to treat 50 patients or 100 patients in order to see one event. And that may be important. It may not be important. And as we start talking about more about shared decision-making with patients, that they have to be able to see those numbers and sort of understand them. They do. I think, you know, sadly, people think like everyone benefits. It doesn't work that way. A select number of people will benefit. We're tipping the odds in your favor, but we're not curing everyone. That's a little hard for people to, um, to get their heads around. When you say, well, you know, we got to treat 50 people to prevent one event, that's actually really pretty good. It means it was 2% reduction in your risk, uh, which is pretty big. Uh, say you're going from a, um, a 8% risk down to a 6% risk. Well, lowering it by 2% is, is pretty good. So that's one of the questions I do want to ask, and I think that people would love to hear, is what level of benefit do you find that it's important? And what are the pieces of the benefit? Because these trials have often have composite endpoints. What pieces of the benefit do you think are important? And do you think that patients should find important? Well, we often lump together a lot of things together, like death, heart attack, stroke. We put them all together so we can get enough events to make a statistical statement. But you should always be asking, well, did it work for all those things? Did it work for death and heart attack, stroke, all of them? Or did it just work on heart attack? Or did it just work on stroke? You should dig deeper. Always dig deeper and ask when you break it out, did you save lives or not? Did you prevent different parts of it, but not all of it? So always be skeptical and uh, dig deeper into just what was the benefit. And I'm going to put you on the hot seat here. 
If you had to use a number needed to treat, what would that number be? And I'll give you a little bit of an out here saying, and in what setting? You know, this is the, you know, thanks for putting me in the hot seat. This is a sore (laughs) point with me. You know, um, everyone says, what's the definition of major bleeding? Major bleeding is any bleed that happens to me, you know? (laughs) And interpret this data, everyone, you know, wants to sit back and say, well, it'd have to be, you'd have to treat a hundred people to see one benefit. That's any more than that. That doesn't work. Well, if it's them though, if it's them and it's like some kind of cancer that's going to kill them, they don't care what the odds are. If it's going to possibly help them, um, they don't care about the number needed to treat. They just care. (laughs) Sadly, they're just looking at their own outcome and is it going to benefit them, not the population? Uh, so it's, uh, it depends if you're asking a person or if you're asking the population. <laughs> well, that was a very nice way of avoiding that answer. Uh, Thank you. You know, I, I try to tell you know give people my sort of understanding of these, and I'm, and when we talk about shared decision making, I actually think it's a little bit of an unfair fight. We have all the data. You know, the patients are going to really lean upon us to be able to interpret that or help interpret that data for them. And for me, you know, a two percent benefit, like you were describing, is a huge benefit. It's really big. And when you start expanding upon that out of a population over and over time and longer periods of time than the trial was in, you probably are really doing a lot more than what that limited outcome from that clinical trial was. I, I wanted to point out the number needed to treat has a limitation. It depends how long you look. If you keep looking longer and longer and longer, the curves are separating more and more. You're going to have, you'd have to treat fewer and fewer people. So it's time dependent. We often don't adjust for that. What is quite important. Well, Dr. Gibson, I just want to thank you for uh, spending the time with us today. I know that you're an extremely, extremely busy man, and I want to thank you for all the clinical trial work you've done. What you have done has completely moved the needle on healthcare in the United States and really around the world. So thank you for all of that, and thank you for spending the time with us today. It's no good unless we educate people. Tom, thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, You can take a deeper dive into this topic with Dr. Gibson at Future Pulse Cardiology.